guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing great. How are you? I'm freezing. I'm freezing to death. It's so cold. (laughs) I can't stand it. I hate everything. My bones hurt. It is. But I'm good. (laughs) It is a very Florida um, winter or fall, I guess, day that we had today, but... I mean, it's in the 50s, and I'm acting like somebody has murdered my entire family in front of me. I just cannot yeah. <laughs> take it anymore. It's so cold. It is cold. I know. I actually ran the heat, which I know like a lot of listeners are probably like, oh, like, big deal. But um, yeah, it was cold enough to run the heat in Florida. So that's cold. Yeah, we're, we're, we're barely surviving here. I'm just really proud of us for pulling, <laughs> <laughs> pulling this together and, you know, not becoming icicles. Very impressed with us. Yeah. So if you have, if you're not one of our Patreon members this month, we actually got it done before November 30th. I will say I was very impressed with us for once, but we did our bonus episode and we did it all about Joyce McKinney and the movie Tabloid or the documentary Tabloid. And we even, it was so good. So crazy. You'll never look at marshmallows the same way again. And we, (laughs) we ended up having like an impromptu, uh, viewing party in our Facebook group. Uh, Stacy set that up for us and it was hilarious to watch people's first time watching it and all their comments. But our Patreon episode is up. So if you are interested in hearing that, it's patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. Lots of other goodies in there. Check it out if you haven't already. And then one other thing we did want to mention was our lovely friends at the Fall Line podcast have released their second season this past week. And I've actually checked out the first episode. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to yet, Melissa. I have. um, It's great. It is so good. Um, This whole season is going to be about the Grady babies of Atlanta. So Grady is a hospital there. And it's very good. It's very fascinating. Uh, Laura and Brooke do an amazing job with their podcast put so much heart and soul into it. A lot of hard work. I really want everyone to listen to it and check it out. So please, please go check out The Fall Line. Season two is out now. The first episode is. The second episode could be out by the time this episode comes out, right? We don't know how things work. Um, I think it'll come out the next day. Yeah. But they're both so lovely. And we got to meet them in Atlanta, which was super cool. And Laura is super nice, super funny, has amazing hair, is super tall. And Brooke was just the (laughs) loveliest, kindest person in the world. So... We love supporting our friends. Yes. All of it's true. So yeah, definitely check them out. So now we will go right into our episode for this week. Um, We have another really wild and crazy story for you guys. This was actually a case that was featured on Dateline recently that I saw and just instantly knew that I wanted to talk about it on our show because it's just that kind of a story. So imagine, if you will, finding out that the person you are dating has been lying to you about their age, not just by a few years, but actually by nine years, and then finding out that they had also given you a fake name. Then imagine that when you Googled their real name, you found out that they were actually a fugitive from the law and had been on the run for over 24 years and had also been featured on America's Most Wanted for at least half of that time. Melissa, what would your thoughts be on that? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I would have been in the police station within like five seconds. I would still be like in the police. I would be Googling from the police station. It just you know, would be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> so this is exactly what happened to a woman named Gina Johnson in Texas in 2006. So Gina had been recently divorced and she was ready to start dating again. So she had turned to a Yahoo personals dating uh, website. I guess that used to be a thing. I don't know if you can Yahoo still personals. do personals on Yahoo. Is it I, still? 
I don't know. I can't imagine. They have like whole websites just for dating now. So I don't even know if that's still a thing. Right. But it was in 2006. So she turns to Yahoo Personal looking for a special man in her life. She had put in her profile and, and spoke a lot about how she was a very honest person and she did not like dishonesty. This was a huge thing for this woman. She did not like people who were dishonest. <laughs> and so that's what she wrote. She was looking for an honest man. So she had been through kind of a tough relationship with her first marriage and was just looking for something different. You know, she had finally worked through all of that and was ready to put herself out there again. So Gina worked for a company that is very well known called Texas Instruments. And I didn't realize until just recently that they made more than just calculators because I just always remember the big giant calculator that you had to have. The graphing one. Yeah, yeah. When you were in like seventh grade. And I remember my parents being like, I can't believe you need like an $80 calculator for this class and not wanting to buy me one. And then I think I broke a couple of them and it was just a mess. Gina's position at um, Texas Instruments was that she was what they called a failure analysis technician. And her job was to give products this final uh, once over and look for any small details with these products, which are technology things. So I would be terrible at this job. So Mm. she was supposed to just look at them and find little things that might be wrong or faulty and then give them another look again, you know, look even closer at all these little things. That job made her very attentive to detail, which she kind of took – that was a quality she took with her into her everyday life as well. I was just going to say, doesn't that sound like the plot of an Adam Sandler movie, like where the woman is like very, very detail-oriented and he comes in and messes up her life and she has two kids and she doesn't really have time for this, but then he makes his way into her heart with fart jokes? That's what it seems like to me. I think you just wrote the next Adam Sandler movie, I'm so Melissa. excited. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> So in spring of 2006, a man named Michael Smith responded to Gina's personal ad on Yahoo. At the time, Gina was 33 and Michael was 34. They were both ready to settle down and start a life with someone. They arranged to meet each other for dinner and Michael showed up in this Dodge Viper, which was very impressive to Gina. Of course, you see something like that and you're thinking, well, this person must be successful. They at least have enough money for a Dodge Viper. So she was kind of thinking along those lines. He must be a very successful man. As I said before, she's very observant by nature. And as they're sitting over dinner and she's kind of just taking it all in and enjoying his company, but also kind of trying to... I don't know, figure him out. It's a first date, but she's checking out everything. She glances down at his class ring and from college, and it had said that he had gotten a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering around the time, the year on it was around the time that she would have been graduating from high school. So instantly she thought like that didn't really add up because she thought this person was only about a year older than her. So she was kind of confused on how he could have finished a bachelor's degree the same year that she was graduating just from high school. So she made a comment to him like, oh, you must be really smart. Like you graduated so early and were able to get all this college done so early. Of course, I don't think she really thought that added up either, but she just made like a joke about it. And he just kind of smiled at her and they laughed and changed the subject and didn't, you know, didn't bring it up again. So this couple continued to hang out and Gina never brought up the age thing, but it was kind of, it stayed in the back of her mind. So they first bonded just as friends, but they did not take their relationship to a physical level for um, several weeks. And then after spending even more time with him, Gina started noticing this age thing kept coming up in her mind. She started noticing what she said were these telltale signs um, that he was older than 34. And it was 
when she was describing it, I totally understood what she meant. Um, she talked about this on the Dateline, but she was saying there was just small details about his like features and everything that you know happen to people as they get older. I don't, I don't know if you because you can't you're really just put your aging. finger on yeah. certain things. Yeah, there's certain things you can't really put your finger on and say, oh well, that's a sign that you're 50. You know what I mean? But like it's just stuff that happens as you get older. Right. It reminds me of like whenever I go to the grocery store and I have my kids with me and somebody looks at me and I always expect the bagger to be like, wow, you're really young. <laughs> have these kids and now I have finally realized at my age I'm like no they're like it's very appropriate that those are your kids you yeah you don't look a day under 10 years older than you are you look like a mom very tired <laughs> so one day um it's funny that you actually mentioned the grocery store example because one day when the Gina and Michael were at the grocery store and he was kind of checking himself out, I guess his own reflection in um, like a window or something. And he started bragging to her about how great he looked for his age. Well, Gina, I guess had enough of this and finally called him out and just said, well, actually I do think you look older than 34, like older than you say you are. And he kind of got a little upset whenever she brought this up, but then he eventually did admit that he was not 34, as he had told her, but he was actually 43. So (laughs) Gina, of course, wasn't really surprised. She was kind of onto him already, but she was very upset that she had been lied to. As I said before, honesty was kind of her thing. It was a very big deal to her. And she basically chose to go on a date with this guy because he had said in his profile that he was an honest person. So he said it online, Melissa. It had yeah, to be true. That's my whole thing. I'm like, okay, his description said he was an honest person. That's like what serial killers do. That's like the dumbest. I would absolutely, if somebody put, I'm an honest person, I'd be like, they're going to steal my wallet. A hundred percent. I would never <laughs> trust that person. Yeah. Yeah. So she becomes kind of curious about what other things he may have been untruthful about. And she half jokingly asked Michael if that was even his real name. So, spoiler alert, that was not his real name. He decided to be honest and come clean with her all the way and told her that his real name was Jerry Ambrosic. And Gina Googles that name the next day. She kind of just lets it go. You know, she's obviously, I would be very freaked out and wondering why you lied to me about your name and your age and all that. But she just kind of lets it roll off her back for the time being. And then the next day she goes and Googles him, his this real name, Jerry Ambrosic. And she gets the shock of her life when she finds out that Jerry actually has quite a past and he is wanted for negligent homicide. Dun, dun, dun. How's that for a new relationship? Yeah, that's a lot. To, <laughs> that's a lot of baggage there. <laughs> Yeah. So now we're going to go 24 years back in time to August 22nd, 1982 on the banks of Little Bitterroot Lake in Montana. And Melissa, I assume you have Googled this city. Barely. By the skin of my teeth, I've Googled this city. (laughs) We're not going to call this Google this city. This is called Google this teeny tiny town. So the population (laughs) of Little Bitterroot Lake is 194 people as of the 2010 census, according to the two lines they have on Wikipedia. Bitterroot Lake is about 2,969 acres in surface area with an average depth of 114 feet at an elevation of 3,998 feet. Bet you wanted to know that information. Meant a lot to me too. (laughs) (laughs) So Little Bitterroot Lake, Montana is not the smallest town in Montana. Ismay is the smallest town with only 25 inhabitants um, as of a 2005 census. And so then I had to say, what is the smallest town in the U.S.? If 
25 is not it. What is it going to be? So that town comes to us from Wyoming. And there is a town called Buford, Wyoming. And Buford has only one resident, a single house, a gas station, and a post office. Do you work at all of those? <laughs> I know. Why, why do you need a post office if you're the only one who lives there? I know. Can you imagine? I would be the biggest diva if I lived there. Like, look at all of this <laughs> just for me. <laughs> I saw a picture of the lady, like, standing in front of the town. I'm like, I probably wouldn't advertise that because you didn't mention that you had a police station. And that's a little nerve wracking that you're just like, it's just me. Come on yeah. down. <laughs> Little Bitterroot Lake is a magical summertime getaway place. Many of the homes were actually owned by families and they had kept them for generations. So on this particular day in August of 1982, there were twin brothers named Jim and John who were 15 at the time and they were out hiking around the lake when a man approached them. So there was a man that was soaking wet and had visible injuries and he told the teens that he had a bear chasing him through the woods. And so he asked them if they had any matches because obviously his lighter got wet and the man was carrying a duffel bag wrapped in green plastic. So the twins... That's not weird. Yeah, I know. This is a long time ago. So the twins were like, sure, Mr. Stranger, let's go get you, you know, some matches. So they take their bikes and go to the corner store and buy matches for the mystery soaking wet man with a duffel bag. So when they come back, the man proceeds to light a fire and he throws in his clothes and what looked like newspapers. Then he just got up and walked off whenever he was done. Later that same day, a young woman and her mother also reported seeing a strange man on their porch when they pulled up to their late cottage. The man they saw was well-kept and had on clean clothes. I need a minute for this. So Date with Dateline covered this case recently, so I'm trying to not like confuse what they said with what we're saying, but they brought up the late, this, this next comment. And it's so important. This lady on Dateline said, he does not look like a lake person. This man did not look like a lake person. What, what (laughs) pray tell does a lake person look like? Is it different than a swamp person? It was just the weirdest question I've ever heard or the weirdest statement. I'm like, okay, he's not a lake person. Like, I thought it was hoity-toity, but it could have been an insult. I just didn't know where she was going with it at all. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Morrison seemed to like nod and be like, yeah, I understand what those people are. I didn't get it at all. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a lake person. So the women spoke to the man and told him he was trespassing and that he needed to leave. The man's story they felt was super odd and didn't make sense, but he did leave without incident. So the women went on with their day and forgot about him, and they never really thought they would hear anything about him again. Like, that's a weird story, but it's not so... He didn't do anything to, like, cause a disturbance, you know? It's just like... Right. They, he was just there when they pulled up, and they were just like, this is private property, go away, yeah. and left, so... And obviously, was... this is such a small area, there's not a lot of people up there. They said, basically, no one's ever just been up there accidentally. You don't, like, take a wrong turn and end up there. At the same time, people were noticing this man, like, wandering around the shore. Other residents in the area were noticing the lake had this strange sheen or film over it. I love how observant everybody in the story is, too. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, this I mean, I guess if you live ago. there and you look at this water every day, maybe you would notice something. I don't know. I'm definitely not that observant. Right? At all. So um, a pilot that happened to be flying over the lake noticed it too, and he called local authorities to let him know there was oil on the lake and that it didn't look like the type of oil that would have come from a boat motor. Like everyone in this is like a tattletale in the best way. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the police and locals wondered whether a smuggler's plane could have landed on the plane on the water and then taken back off. But then they had an even stranger idea. They believed that maybe this had actually been a pilot and 
that pilot had crashed his plane into the water, and that's where the oil came from, this, like, sheen that was in the lake. There was a man named Deputy DuPont. Deputy DuPont was sent to check out the situation. He was not only a deputy in the area, but he was also a pilot. So Deputy DuPont spoke to the teens who had claimed to buy have bought matches for this soaking wet injured man. And when he checked out the area where they said the man had made a fire, the officer did see a fire ring and also noticed a gust lock, which is a device that locks the flight control surfaces on a plane's wings. I obviously did not know what this is. And Mandy put a note that it's the flaps that go up and down. <laughs> so it's the lock I that helps so. I spent so much time Googling what exactly a gust lock was. I still really am not sure there's some that are like removable devices that are like a strap and it's almost like a um, like a fabric type thing. Right. And then I've also seen some that they looked like when I looked at the pictures, it was like actually built into the plane. I don't really know. All I all I gathered was that it's meant to like if you try to fly a plane and you have the gust lock engaged, like you're going to crash the plane. Like that's basically what I gathered. So this is like a device that just locks the – but the, the flight control surfaces are the little flappy things that go up and down on the wings. That's really all you need to know. It's just like stops those from – This is going to be from, alligator from clips gusting. all over again, and we're just going to get messages all week about what alligator clips are. I'm I know. Totally we should kidding. never try to explain things. Just you Google know something if you don't know what it is. <laughs> but what we should do is instead of like going on with our episode, we should actually Google it while we're sitting here. But never. I'm like, no, we can look like idiots one more week. That's totally yeah. fine. I'm not editing any of that. <laughs> so after he found this gust lock, the deputy started believing that the crashed plane theory was probably true, and he believed that there was an airplane now sunken somewhere in the lake, which was kind of an interesting thing because this was not like a, a little tiny lake. This is a huge lake. Um, it's a glacier lake. And in some parts of the lake, it's like more than 250 feet deep. So it's not like you can just fly over a plane and say, let's try to look for something in the water. Right. Like you're just not going to find it. So as I said, they also started believing that this mysterious man was the pilot of this plane that they believed was in the water somewhere. So the deputy took the gust lock to the airport and tested it on a few different aircrafts and realized that the one that it fit was actually a Cessna 150. So that's a very small passenger plane. They believe that they would actually find that type of plane in the lake whenever they did their search. So the sheriff's divers were called in. They started searching. So technology was not what it is now uh, back in the 80s. And so they were actually trying to use fish finders to locate this plane. And once again, I'm not a lake person, so I don't even know what that is. So they searched the lake for over a week and did not find anything. And the sheriff had actually gotten some gotten wind about this new device called a side scanning sonar. And they got one sent out to the lake as a last ditch effort. They were going to try this before they were going to actually call off the search and just say, you know, maybe there is no plane and maybe this is crazy. So it actually worked and the sonar did hit on something large in the water. And a camera was sent down to get a look. And sure enough, it was a sunken airplane. So the plane was actually more than 250 feet down. So the divers, of course, cannot dive down that to that distance. So they used a submersible, like, I couldn't even tell what it was. It was like a submersible boat crane thing. And they got the plane off the floor of the lake bottom and brought it up to a um, depth of about 150 feet. So then the divers could dive down, scope it out and help get the plane all, all the way out of the water. So when the divers got down to where the plane was, they noticed that there was actually the plane was not empty. There was actually a young woman inside the plane 
who was still strapped into her seatbelt on the passenger side. And they noticed that her she had long hair and her hair was actually closed in the door and dangling outside of the plane. Immediately, of course, wanted to get this plane out of the water and find out exactly what they were dealing with here with this situation. So they retrieved the plane as quickly as possible. And there was a crowd of people on the shoreline um, watching as they, you know, recovered this plane. Of course, as we said, there's not a lot going on in this town. So this was probably like the highlight of their year. It was weird seeing all those people like it was very sitting weird. there. And then like you have police officers that are holding up a sheet to protect this woman's, you know, dignity this, yeah, yeah it was it was pretty terrible and like everyone from town is sitting there not to say that they're wrong or anything but it was just kind of it was kind of bizarre to see yeah i agree for sure so they noticed that the woman's body um was actually in very good condition the water temperature there is actually very cold so her body was very well preserved and a lot of the officers and even some of the other witnesses basically said that this woman looked perfectly like she was just asleep which is just so sad there they all pretty much said like that was something that they will just never forget seeing you know i just can't even imagine so the police of course have so many questions about what they have just found they didn't know who this woman was they didn't know how this plane ended up at the bottom of the lake and they did not know where this mysterious man who had been wandering the shoreline had gone and what if any connection he had to any of this So we are going to get into all of those details after a quick word from this week's sponsors. We are back to tell you guys about Poshmark this week. Instead of buying things new, you can shop from millions of closets across America. It's December now, and that means it's time for holiday parties. Instead of spending a ton of money on a dress I'll wear once, I decided to check out Poshmark. Again, I was able to find a beautiful cap sleeve black and navy dress with sequins from Ann Taylor for just $20. And this will pair beautifully with my new blue suede shoes I bought just a few weeks ago from Poshmark. And one of our favorite things about Poshmark is that you can make the seller an offer. My dress was actually listed at $28 and I offered the seller $20 and the seller accepted it in a matter of just a few minutes. And remember, shipping is so easy for both the buyer and the seller. Download the free Poshmark app and immediately have access to women, kids, and men's clothing and accessories. They have everything from Nike, Lululemon, and Gucci. Listeners of Moms and Murder get $5 off your first purchase. Just enter the invite code MURDER5 when you sign up. That's invite code MURDER5 for $5 off your first purchase at sign up. We've all heard the saying, when life hands you lemons, just make lemonade. But what if those lemons are rotten and there's no sugar to be found and now you're left with a cup of sour lemon juice? Things aren't always unicorns and rainbows, and sometimes we need someone to talk to. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house in real pants. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. 
Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the story. As police in Montana worked to figure out what had occurred with the crash plane, officials on the other side of the border in Penticton, Canada, were investigating a strange instance of an aircraft that had gone missing with two young people occupying it. The plane was actually supposed to make a three-hour flight from Penticton to Vancouver, but it never arrived. Canadian officials started looking for any witnesses that may have seen a small airplane flying by, and they learned that the plane had been seen flying through a narrow, windy valley that was posted as a no-fly zone. Again, so many witnesses, basically this entire story. Nearby Observatory, also a no-fly zone, said they registered a disturbance that was likely a small airplane the day of the disappearance. So they have no idea where the plane goes after that. Conveniently, there was no emergency okay. locator transmitter I, I, on this plane because yeah, it was a train. I don't know plane about that. That, that seemed a little sketchy to me. I feel like Vancouver. all planes that seems like a faulty thing. Some <laughs> kind of device, right? That you can find out. I mean, because even a training plane and even a twenty-mile radius, like that's still a lot of ground to cover. If one of those planes goes missing, right? Yeah, and I right. feel like yeah. that would be easy to go outside of that. You know what I mean? It's not like a 400-mile radius, 20 miles in in the air. (laughs) You're moving pretty quickly there. I don't quite get that. But okay, that's what it was. (laughs) The idea among Canadian officials was that the plane had crashed and that the people on board had died. It was all hands on deck as they tried to locate this plane. A young reporter for the Vancouver Sun named Margot Harper did a little digging and found out the names of the young people on the plane. There were two young people. The first was 19-year-old Jerry Ambrosic and his 18-year-old girlfriend, Diane Babcock. Margot investigated this story, and she spoke to students at the high school the couple had attended. She heard that they were a well-known couple with a sort of Romeo and Juliet type of relationship. Neither of their families approved of their relationship. Yeah. People started to believe that maybe they, they were trying they to yeah. elope or run away together. But they're both of age. You know what I mean? Like... They can leave. The families of the young couple were very worried, and they had search and rescue missions flying all over the place to look for them. Upon hearing about this um, plane in the lake in Montana, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police contacted the sheriff of Montana and told him about their missing plane, and they made arrangements to fly down to Montana to help. Meanwhile, the mysterious man that had been lurking around the lake after the crash had vanished. Police now knew his name, but they were unsuccessful in locating him. It was believed that he had gone on the run, but police didn't know why. A week later, Jerry contacted his friend Tom from a payphone in New York City. He told him that the plane had been crashed into the lake on purpose, and he ditched it. He said Diane was still in the plane at the time, and he was shocked and fled the scene and was calling him from a bus terminal. So at this point, speculation begins. Was the plane crash an accident or a way to cover up a murder? Did Jerry intentionally leave Diane to die instead of trying to save her? And why would he run away if he was innocent of a crime? I'll never understand that. very good questions. Super valid. I'm following you. Exactly. So the authorities set up a phone tap on Tom's phone just in case Jerry decided to call again. 
And that was smart because he did call again. But this time he did not identify him. So he didn't just say, hey, it's Jerry. He actually identified himself with an alias and said that he was now calling from Dallas, Texas. And he told Tom a few more details, but really not too many on this second phone call. He um, had told Tom about how he was going on the plane because he was going. I guess he already had plans. Like he literally said, I was I went because I was going. So I don't know what that even means. I guess he was already planning on going regardless. Yeah. And then he said that Diane tagged along with him because she was, quote, in love with him or something. And he kind of played that off and made it seem like when he was talking to this guy, Tom, he made it seem like he didn't really have the same feelings for Diane, maybe that she did for him. But then in the same conversation, he did say, you know, she's gone now and I'm so alone and it's so lonely and everything. And it was confusing. It was like two different stories. It was very confusing. It was very, very confusing. But then he said he was calling because he did want to give information that would lead to the police finding her, her body, but then said, I am not coming back. I'm not turning myself in um, and said that police are never going to find him. This is what he tells his friend Tom. And then he kind of and when Tom was like, well, why won't you just turn yourself in or answer the questions or, you know, if because he even said like, well, you didn't kill her. So why won't you just come back and sort this out? And so Jerry said that he believed everyone was going to think he was guilty of murder and that he was just scared and he didn't want anyone coming to look for him and he didn't want to be caught up in any of this. So he was going in hiding. So after they had retrieved the plane from the lake, it was taken back to a hangar to inspect. And they found inside of it a life raft, some disguises, and some survival gear. They also found another duffel bag with um, sleeping bags and extra clothes inside. So after seeing all these things that the couple had on the plane with them, um, the police started putting like the pieces of this puzzle together and trying to put a theory together. So they believed at this point that the plan was to crash the plane and then to ditch it, jump into this life raft that they had, make their way to shore, disguise themselves, and off they go. They're on the run. They're in America now, and nobody is going to find them. So this was what they were calling the elopement theory. Something else that was really interesting was when they performed an autopsy on Diane, it did show that she had died from drowning, which would make sense if she was trapped in a plane as it crashed. But she also had a broken collarbone and a neck fracture, as well as a bruise on the right side of her forehead. Likely, all of those injuries were caused by the impact of the crash, which, as Jerry would later say, was like hitting a cement wall. Um, And then also during the autopsy, it was revealed that Diane had recently terminated a pregnancy. Of course, that makes this story more interesting to the police, I'm sure, who are kind of wondering where all of these little details fit in uh, with each other. So the coroner had said that all of these injuries that she had sustained were survivable injuries. And If only she could have been helped out of the plane, she probably would have been able to live through this crash. So strangely, there were not any wounds on her fingers or fingernails or anything that would indicate that she had made a desperate attempt to get out of the seatbelt, which of course you would if you realized that you were 
in a sinking plane. But they did note that the seatbelt was actually flipped around so that the buckle was backwards and resting against her body. And so they kind of thought maybe that's why she wasn't able to get it unlocked in time. But the detectives were nonetheless suspicious that Jerry could have saved Diane, but intentionally chose not to. Um, this that Detective DuPont, who was investigating this, had said there was something he said in there about like, if this was my like girl that I was going to be trying to elope with and we were that in love, like, you know, you would find me in the plane with I would have died trying to get her out of it or right, something right. like that. And so he was not buying it that Jerry was able to escape from this plane, make it to shore and all of that. And he didn't he wasn't able to get this woman out of her seatbelt. And they did some tests on the seatbelt and said that there was nothing wrong with the buckle. The seatbelt wasn't locked. I mean, it just came right undone. It's just the question was just why she wasn't able to get out. So they flew Diane's body back to Canada and buried her in the family plot. And in the meantime, um, officials in Montana decided that what had happened here was a crime and they brought negligent homicide charges against Jerry which officially made him a fugitive on the run since he was no longer in the area and they did not know where he was. They knew that his last known location was Dallas, Texas, because he had made that phone call, but he had called from a payphone, so it was not going to be very easy to track him down from there. Um, they knew that he probably wasn't going to return to the same payphone to make another call, and it would just be a giant waste of everyone's time and money to send an officer down there to stake out a payphone. So months passed, and then those months turned into years, and the search for Jerry was unsuccessful. The police believed that he had likely crossed the border into Mexico and might not ever be found. During most of the 90s, Jerry was on the list of America's Most Wanted, but none of the tips that came in were credible or successful at locating him. So Jerry had actually pulled off what not too many people can, which was disappearing without a trace. That is definitely something you don't hear a lot. So we're going to get into exactly how Jerry pulled this off after another quick word from this week's sponsor. Mandy? Yes, Melissa? I turned 35 this year, which means that my skin is 35. With all the obvious maturity in my personality comes maturity in my skin. It's softer, droopier, and just not the skin I had in my 20s. I don't want to look in the mirror on my next big day and wonder what the heck has happened. The problem is, of course, what do you do and what do you use? There are a ton of products out there. How do I know what's right for me and my skin? Luckily, we've been able to find the perfect solution. It's called Beauty by Design. Here's how it works. First, you visit the Beauty by Design website. You take a quick survey all about your skin, snap a quick selfie, and you're good to go. Next, your esthetician reviews your skincare quiz, checks out your selfie, and then curates a personalized skincare routine that is specific for you, your skin, and your concerns. Now that's the definition of personalization. You can even text your esthetician with questions anytime. It's like having your own skin concierge. Beauty by Design offers personalized skincare at budget-friendly prices. When your esthetician is matching you to products, they always take your budget into consideration. We've been using the products chosen by our estheticians for the past few weeks, and we love the products they offer. They have over 100 products and 250-plus natural performance ingredients that are vegan, cruelty-free, and paraben and sulfate-free. Not only that... They feel amazing going on your skin. Beauty by Design also allows you to shop the way you want. There is no subscription, no obligations, free shipping, and free returns, making this totally risk-free. 
Haven't you always been curious about what's best for your skin? Find out now. To experience the world's most personalized skincare, go to beautybydesign.com slash moms and use promo code moms today. First-time customers get 20% off. Again, first-time customers will receive 20% off at beautybydesign.com slash moms and use promo code moms today. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the show. So to recap, Jerry is on America's Most Wanted. I wonder if he was on America's Most Wanted the show. I should ask my dad. He watches. He was. He was. That's what they said for like 10 years. 10 years, right? Yeah, he was on there. I got to ask my dad. He doesn't even remember my birthday, but I guarantee he'll remember Jerry. Yeah. So, (laughs) So as we said, Jerry has evaded police for years now, despite being on such a big show like America's Most Wanted. And in 1991, nine years after the plane crash, Deputy DuPont was elected sheriff. Years continue to pass, and this case continues to haunt Deputy DuPont. The RCMP constable who had been in office at the time of the crash had retired by the year 2000. What police did not know was that Jerry had disappeared to Texas and assumed a new identity. He had taken a train from New York, where he had called Tom from the first time, and then he hitchhiked his way down to Texas. But the man he rode with stole all of his money, and he had nothing. He met a nice guy who allowed him a place to stay and also told him how to get a new identity. That sounds like a really nice guy. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, not so much the guy who robbed him the day before. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I like that this shady guy's like, "Eh, I can get you a new identity. No big deal. (laughs) So Jerry goes to a local cemetery and he is looking for someone who was deceased before the age of one. His idea was that there would be no dental records. There would be no school records. There's nothing. So no one's going to see this name and say, well, that's not you. That's this other, you know, person. There's all these records attached to him. So he found this gravestone with the generic name of Michael Smith. So he literally walks up to Vital Records office and requests a birth certificate on this person, and they just gave it to him. No questions asked. My son is five years old, and this week I finally got his birth certificate because I'm a really good mom. Yeah, and <laughs> I know. I'm like, wow, you're officially my kid. Um, but no, I had to go through like all these questions online, and then it was like asking me who owned the first home my husband and I bought, like who we bought it from. Like, I don't know. It was like a total guessing game. I was like, I hope this is right. But there was a lot of questions. You, I couldn't just say, yeah, my kids named this. You know, it was like, what's your blood type? What's your, you know, Zodiac sign? It was just a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so anyway, so he gets this, this birth certificate and 
he gets a driver's license with it. And from there, he really has a new identity. So under his new name, he attended college at the University of Texas in Arlington, and he obtained a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering. But he realized that if he goes through the security clearance process, they'd probably dig deep enough to find out that he was not who he said he was. So he ditched that dream and got into working on computers instead. Is that not something you sit down and talk to your counselor with whenever you're like trying to pick a major? Yeah. You're going to go through all those classes and then be like, oh, you know what? They might do a background check. Sorry about that whole thing. (laughs) Give me a computer to work on. Yeah. But he was super, super bright. Um, But he went on to build a nice, comfortable life for himself and made a lot of money, had a nice home and nice cars, including that Viper we talked about before. And he traveled around the world. And that's when he decided that his life was not full and complete. He wanted to try for love again, and he made that dating profile on Yahoo. And that's where he meets Gina Johnson from the beginning of the story. So as we said, Gina had eventually caught Jerry in his lies and confronted him, but she didn't immediately break things off with Jerry, even though she was super upset that he had been dishonest with her because honesty was her entire thing. I mean, Gina, everybody's whole thing is honesty. She was very hung up on honesty, on that being like something that she really like just wanted. But who's. I mean, we all do, but. Right. I'm like, okay, you're very special, Gina. I had no idea I didn't want somebody to lie to me. And then he lies to her and she's still like, all right, okay. Maybe honesty wasn't number one there. I'm kidding. So Jerry had invited Gina to accompany him on a trip to Japan. And even though things were kind of weird between them, she decided to go. And they had a wonderful trip, but started bickering towards the end of it. Once they got home, the relationship ended. The 25th anniversary of the crash was looming over Sheriff DuPont, and he was getting ready to go into retirement. But he felt this sense of unsettlement over not having solved this case or located Jerry after all these years. Meanwhile, Gina is pondering whether or not she should turn Jerry in or go on with her life and leave it alone. But you know that this guy's a wanted man. Like, yeah. Like, you know, when, if you don't know the information, you don't do anything. But once you know the information, I feel like there's an obligation. But that's me being, like, Miss Rule follower. And don't ever tell me you're, like, have a fake last name. Because once I Google you, you're off to the slammer. I just don't even want to hear that. So... <laughs> I get it. Like she's had this relationship with him and and it has to be a hard decision because you know once you turn him in, you know, everything's destroyed and he's a nice guy. So yeah, I'll give her that. Yeah. And also he's telling her this story that happened and it's not what police are saying. You know what I mean? So it's not like she's got a whole other side of the story. So she felt really bad for Diane's family, obviously for having no answers and decided to contact Sheriff DuPont with her story months later. Sheriff DuPont was over the moon excited to hear this news and felt that Gina was a legitimate source because she knew details that wouldn't be possible if she was making it up. So 24 years after the plane accident, police in Texas knocked on the door of Michael Smith and they came face to face with Jerry Ambrosic. He was arrested and placed in a padded cell and put under suicide watch. He contacted his family back in Canada for the first time in over two decades, and he said it was amazing to be able to connect with them again. So he gave up everything to be on the run. Yeah, he did. He really did. He had to. And um, he was saying, too, that his, like, when he called his mom, he, like, you know, they told him that they never moved out of that house. They never changed their phone number. They never did anything because they always thought that he was going to come back or was going to contact them in some way. That was super sad and just you've lost all that time. Your family's lost all that time that, I don't know, just 
got you want to be like, was it worth it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. really, was it worth it? Yeah, like, you, yeah. You've hurt so many people just by not being honest. So Sheriff DuPont was, of course, extremely anxious to meet Jerry and ask him all the questions that they've had on their minds for 24 years. Of course, the sheriff had gotten close with Diane's family over the years and really was on their side. And he actually did not take too – he wasn't too fond of Jerry. I got the impression that he kind of thought he was – I don't know what he thought. Well, he said he thought he was a sociopath. Oh, but he, the words he used was, he was a sociopath, but like a good sociopath. I was like, well, there is. Well, that's what he said. He's like, some sociopaths are good and some are bad. But like being a sociopath doesn't necessarily mean that you're like a serial killer or something. You know, like it just means that you don't show a lot of emotions and feelings. But I've never heard, I've (laughs) never heard someone say like, on a, like a things about myself, like I'm a sociopath, and it ever been painted well, no. in some yeah. like great light, which is well, what no, Dupont it literally was like. means that you don't feel things. Like I said, Melissa, you could be one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not questioning that. So Sheriff Dupont really just took on the thought that Jerry could have prevented the drowning death of this young woman, and he wanted to know why he let her die in the plane. So he was pretty much convinced that this was intentionally done, I guess. So Jerry got an attorney, of course. His name was Chuck Watson. And he said that his client took responsibility for botching the plane landing and fleeing the scene. But he insisted that this man was heartbroken over the fact that Diane had been killed in this accident and he still had not gotten over it even to this day. You know, he, he was just saying, like, there's really no proof that he had murdered anyone or intentionally left her there and kind of thought that this idea that the police had or that really the deputy DuPont had, he thought this was kind of a silly idea and, right. and it wasn't worth looking into according to Jerry's lawyer. Jerry actually did not talk much in court, but he did give an interview to Keith Morrison on this dateline that we have been talking about. His version of what happened goes a little something like this. He and Diane were madly in love. Her family did not approve of him, but she did not care, and they planned to run off together and have this happy life. So they got this wild idea after watching a couple of movies that they would go live in a jungle and survive off the land. I don't know why whenever he was telling this, I was like laughing because I know they were young, but they were like 18 and 19, but I totally had this idea that I was going to go live in the jungle off the land when I was like 13 or 14, I was going to run away and... I think we've talked about this. Everyone's had this. Yeah. I wasn't going to pack anything important. Like I was going to pack like conditioner for my hair because you definitely need that (laughs) when you're like. When the rabid animals are coming after you, you want to look fresh. (laughs) Selfie ready. No. And Michael Scott did this on the Survivor Man episode of The Office. He was going to live off of the land and it was horrible, terrible, but I, I love it. Yeah. So that was their ultimate goal. Um, They were going to try and do this, and they really wanted to get to South America. They were going to hitchhike their way down. And, of course, back then, borders were not as secure as they are now. So this would not have been too hard of a task. They just had to go from Canada to the U.S. and then hitchhike way down to South America. Sounds super easy to me. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Got your conditioner. You're ready to go. So the idea to actually ditch the plane came to them while they were taking flying lessons. And they thought that what they could do was land it on water and then get out of the plane before it sank. This is just a case of really, really terrible ideas. There are so many things I can imagine. Even if you just do one thought, you know, think this through one time, you should come up with several things that could go wrong with this plan. So that's what they were going to do. But there was just one problem. 
And that was that Diane had found out she was pregnant just a few days they had uh, before they had planned to leave. Jerry did tell Keith Morrison that she did terminate that pregnancy, but she insisted that she was fine and she was committed to their plan to elope. And she 100% wanted to go with him on this plane and, and carry out their plan. So they went to the airport, they rented a plane, and they flew to Penticton and hung around there for the day um, before flying north and then turning around and flying south towards Montana. All of this was to throw people off their trail and so that they wouldn't be able to tell exactly where they had gone. So they loaded the plane up with everything they thought was necessary to do this plan they had. And when they were coming up to Little Bitterroot Lake, Jerry slowed the plane down to a stalling speed and took off his seatbelt, but said that Diane kept hers fastened. When they hit the lake, the cold water immediately started rushing in and Jerry called out to Diane, who responded back that she was fine, but that she couldn't get her seatbelt off. So Jerry tried to help her, but what he didn't realize was that the plane had actually flipped over in the water in the crash and was now upside down. So he was actually trying to rescue her from the wrong side of the plane initially. And as you can imagine, there's water rushing into this plane. Every second counts in a situation like this. So he's not even on the right side of the plane. He finally gets to the right side of the plane. And was trying to open the door to free Diane from her seatbelt. But he said that the plane just started sinking faster and faster. And next thing you know, the whole plane was submerged and was sinking down to the lake bed. And he says that he was in absolute and complete shock. He was absolutely horrified over what was happening and going on right in front of him. He treaded, he said he was like stayed in, you know, in the water in the area, hoping that she would resurface and um, that she would have gotten herself out. But when she didn't, he knew he had to doggy paddle his way to shore and get out of the water. Um, he says he was absolutely panicked and completely freaked out and that he got so scared and just fled the scene because he didn't know what was going to happen to him. And in the meantime, of course, he is like, shocked over what has happened and devastated and, um, you know, doesn't really know what to do. I want to ask you, Melissa, what do you think about his story? I personally believe this version of the events. I definitely believe the story. I I just don't understand, um, how he would have killed her. You know what I mean? Like when they say, oh, she wasn't able to get herself out of the seatbelt, but she, you know, hurt herself obviously and impact so that could have left her confused days not to be able to get herself out and if he's trying to get her out I totally feel like this is a very plausible thing that happened yeah and he was just saying like you know when people think of it or they say what they would have done you know I would have died in the plane trying to get her out and all that like he's you know his his whole thing is like you don't know what you would do and like you don't realize how fast like that this happened like the plane went down really quickly it started sinking and i mean you you just can't even imagine even if you even if he had like a whole minute well that's like what 60 seconds that goes by really fast you know yeah i don't know it's very scary yeah it just seems like he just lucked out taking off his seatbelt. but he talked about how it was like hitting a cement wall and that could have been a really terrible idea. You know what I mean? Like it just, I feel like it was more of a luck thing that he was able to get out. But I feel terrible for her family because they're going to believe what they believe and nobody knows except for him and her. Yeah. 
So when he was asked why he managed to only have the one duffel bag that had his clothes and the money in it, he um, insists that it is just a coincidence that his bag was the one that floated up out of the plane. Again, I believe that. I know it seems unlikely, but I totally believe that. So he, as I said, insists that this was a terrible accident and absolutely not a crime. He said that they had a very real and intense love and he just wanted nothing more than to run away with her. Diane's family, however, thinks all of this is nonsense. They actually don't even think Diane would have been a willing participant in any of this and they wanted Jerry to go to jail. I feel so terrible for her family and I, I, but I do kind of feel like they're just, I feel like in these, they're hurt and they want somebody to be responsible. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just so, so you can't even imagine your 18 year old daughter, you know, losing them in that way. Yeah. And I can see how they just would like, they want somebody to blame really. Here's one question I have though. How was her hair trapped in the plane door? They never really explained it, but I would assume that if he was trying to open the door and everything and the plane is going down and sinking, you can see how hair would like slip out and then the door could slam shut when the water, you know, gets back on it. That's all. That's all I was thinking. I don't know what the family thinks. That that would make sense to me if he's trying to open it and as the plane's going under and the pressure from the water sucking them, you know, sucking the plane down, you're not going to be able to. That's what I think. I think the hair being on the outside of the door like that is actually proof that he did try to get her out right. of the plane. I feel yeah. like because the only way that would happen is if the door was opened and then slammed shut again. Yeah, I think so So too. the judge actually dropped the negligent homicide charge. And of course, Diane's family was not happy. Um, Jerry pled guilty to criminal mischief and criminal endangerment, but he did not receive any jail time. He was flown back to Texas to answer to federal charges of fraud and spent four months in jail and had to pay some hefty fines related to the stolen identity business, but he was eventually set free and deported back to Canada where there were no charges awaiting him. And he now lives as a free man. And he said that he is so happy that he does not have to live in hiding anymore and that he has his relationship back with his, you know, his parents and his siblings. And he also likes to make a note that he lived a good and upstanding life as Michael Smith. He you know, he got an education, he contributed to society, he paid taxes, he wasn't out there using this identity to, you know, really cause any problems or anything. So yeah, as I said, this story was just featured on Dateline um, back in October, I think it aired on the 12th of October. And the episode was called at the bottom of the lake. It was super fascinating Dateline. So check that out. Oh, and this weekend we found out is going to be Thanksgiving. By the time you guys hear this, Thanksgiving will be over. But Thanksgiving, I can't believe Thanksgiving is a thing. Happy Thanksgiving became a real thing. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. So Kim from People Are Wild has been pushing for a year to get Thanksgiving into something. No one really knew what we wanted, but but everyone knew that we wanted something to happen. And so they're playing like a Josh Mankiewicz episode this past Friday when you hear this. And on Saturday, they're playing two Josh Mankiewicz episodes. And so it's a happy Thanksgiving. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. And we're just all so excited. We sure are. Yeah. And so anyway, so that'll be a lot of fun. But make sure you also check out the Date with Dateline episode on At the Bottom of the Lake. They spend a lot of time talking about lake people and also dissecting the mustaches in this episode. Since it was yeah. very age. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of Very 80s. They're, they're so good. So you have to check that so out. So before we do our last thing, before we go, we want to tell you guys one more time about a new show that we are loving called The Melanie Minot Show. If you haven't already listened, this is a great week to check it out. Melanie talks all about what's trending in pop culture and in a young female's mind, but in a fun and informative way. 
It's infotainment. Melanie offers witty summaries of breaking and trending pop culture and celebrity news. On an episode from a few days ago, they discussed Thanksgiving and a new Keurig machine that doesn't brew coffee, as well as several other fun topics. She and her bro host chat about everything from relationships to the more important things like who got voted off The Bachelor this week. Melanie's background includes working as a Hollywood gossip reporter, so you never know what fun and often inspiring guests might pop in. To listen to what Melanie is up to this week or which celebrity is Melanie's next to pop in, check her out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's the Melanie Minot Show podcast. That's M-I-N-E-A-U. So before we go, we'll do our last thing before we go. Does that make sense? Yeah? Great. Wonderful. Mandy's not even nodding. She's just like, no, <laughs> just sitting there. <laughs> just shut up, Melissa. Make it be over. Okay. It's like 11 o'clock at night. It I'm is. <laughs> I know. Okay. So this one comes from our dear friend, Marcella, who we got to actually meet in um, Atlanta and we got to eat breakfast with her and we had chicken and waffles. What did you eat? You ate some not chicken and waffles. I ate a lobster omelet. It was <laughs> so bougie. And I really think I'm using that right. Um, yeah, and it was delicious, but she is so wonderful and so great. So it was great to meet her. And she had a good question this week. Mandy, if you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? So (laughs) before I get into that, I want to tell a quick story. (laughs) Oh, wow. I was not arrested, but there was, um, a time that my husband and I had gone to this really, really awesome, amazing, magical bed and breakfast in uh, North Carolina. And it was on this plantation. So they had this farm and like there were little baby piglets on the farm while we were there. And one day, oh, and they also gave us like free wine every day at happy hour. (laughs) I love this this important detail. You're like, oh, because I would not do anything like this if I did not drink any wine on this trip. So anyway, so we had a few glasses of wine and we decided to wander down. Everything was open. You could walk into like these farm areas and everything was fine. Nobody was there like watching you. So it was like dusk and I come across this pig pen with mommy pig and all these adorable little baby piglets. And I don't know what came over me, but they were like, they came kind of close to the fence. The fence like was kind of like at like my hip length. So I don't even know what came over me. I just thought like, I'm going to bend down and pick up one of these baby piglets and hold it. So I did. I bent down. I scooped up this baby piglet. (laughs) And I was holding it. And I told my husband, I was like, get a picture of me holding this piglet. And like, I... I still have that picture and I still love it. I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it for you. But I always like thought like, what if someone saw me doing that? And like, what if I did get arrested? Because I'm sure that was not legal. Like I I was like basically kidnapping a piglet. I mean, I wasn't going to steal it. I wasn't going to take it anywhere. But still, I don't think they would have approved of me doing that. So no, I would probably think that people would assume it would be something like that for me that I had gotten caught. Oh, for sure. Just trying to snuggle a baby pig. Yeah, I believe that 100%. (laughs) So my family would believe that I got arrested for helping you (laughs) when you were getting arrested for stealing an animal. (laughs) They would think- Because nobody would believe that you got arrested for anything. (laughs) They would think I was like somehow in the car and I had no idea you were stealing baby piglets. And that would be the only way they would be like, oh, was she with Mandy? Okay, got it. There were animals involved for Melissa. (laughs) 
So, um, Mandy, what is the most embarrassing thing one of your children has ever done in public? This comes from Allie D in our Facebook group. I'm going to let you answer that first. I don't really even know of a specific example right off the top of my head. (laughs) Okay. Well, this one I've been holding on to for a while because this is a new one and it's going to traumatize me for the rest of my life. My son is... um, (laughs) <laughs> when you're when you started off my son is um you already know it's not gonna be good my son is wonderful <laughs> lovely so um he watches martha speaks that show don't ever let your kids watch they they learn a lot and they don't need to learn all this so somehow my son had been watching a lot of martha speaks not somehow i know how i let him watch a lot and we were in a store and he started getting more and more agitated and that happens sometimes with him and um And we were standing in line and he started yelling. And I was like, all right, this is not going good. We need to get out of here. But then I told him, you know, hey, Park, you got to calm down. And he screamed, your prejudice, your prejudice. (laughs) And everyone starts looking and he just keeps screaming at me. No, I won't. Your prejudice. (laughs) What do these people think I'm doing? And so that's his new thing, though, because obviously I I kind of panicked when he said it and was like, oh, no, that's not what he said. No, he watches Martha Speaks. They definitely learn that word on there. But now that's his thing. If he gets mad and he did it at Thanksgiving and my sister was dying laughing because he got mad about something. He just screamed, you are prejudiced. I'm like, all right, now imagine (laughs) him doing that to you out in public. It is not a good feeling. And that's his new go-to. And I'm going to continue to be embarrassed by him yelling that. So thanks for nothing, PBS. (laughs) I don't even know. My kids do a lot to embarrass me. Most of the time, it's just (laughs) acting like wild animals um, out in public. But I really can't think of anything off the top of my head. Like, I don't have a story like that. I wish I did. Do you? (laughs) Would you like to borrow my son and bring him places for him to scream at you? (laughs) And it's like the one word he says completely clear, too. (laughs) There's no mistaking him saying, like, you're pizza or anything. It's like, no, you're prejudiced. You're a terrible mother. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, mine, I feel like this has probably happened to so many people out there. But I've had definitely moments, you know, where I've been in a store and like my kids have been acting wild and crazy and like I will just go up to them and like there was one time I went up and just grabbed my youngest by the arm and just kind of like pulled him in closer not like yanking him around or like pulling his arm out of the socket or anything but I like grabbed him by the arm and like pulled him in closer so I could like talk to him like in his ear that way I'm not yelling like a maniac in the middle of the store and he just like blurts out like don't touch me you're hurting me and then like everybody turns and stares at me like I'm like you know and he's crying and I'm just like of course then I'm like bright red and I have this like look of absolute disgust on my face so they're probably looking at me like oh she was beating me right now someone start recording this Oh, yeah. No, my daughter's done that to me, too, where she's just like, I'll grab the back of her elbow. Just like I'm talking lightly pinched, just like if she's having an attitude. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Not painful at all, just enough to be like, I'm watching you. And she was like, Mom, why are you hurting me? I'm like, okay, we got to bring it down about 10 levels because the police are over there and this is going to turn really ugly. (laughs) You can't say things like that in public. I I promise we do not hurt our children. I promise, promise. But this is, and also I'm not prejudiced. I promise that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This is a terrible idea. We sound awful. <laughs> it really has been going downhill for me the entire time. Okay. Well, on that lovely note, um, we will be back again next week, but we will be off a couple weeks in December. We are going to take off December 25th, Christmas, and January 1st, New Year's. We will not have shows for you then. I wonder why. Because it's holidays. Let us have holidays. 
Celebrate yeah, with your family. We want you to have holidays. Don't listen to podcasts. Don't listen to Spend murder on Christmas, please. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way to do it. So anyway, and then we'll be back after that. But we have weekly shows until then. So we're here. We're here. For the next couple of weeks. Yeah, there you go. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.